0: for the opportunity to be back here with y'all i do feel like this is a in a sense a second church family uh, and so i always enjoy the opportunity to be able to come into worship with y'all and to fellowship with y'all and i really do value and appreciate uh, the way that y'all have cared for me in friendship and in prayer and, and support and even in providing snacks for the work that i do as a campus minister at nc state and meredith um, it is a deep encouragement to me to experience the love that y'all have for for me and my family and for the work that God is doing at NC State and Meredith and I want you to know and I hope this is an encouragement that I pray for y'all regularly um, that you are part of my daily prayers that this church would um, grow in its understanding of the love of God and its reflection uh, into the city of Fuquay, Varina and the surrounding areas Uh, Because I love y'all. I want to pray for you, but I also pray for you because I feel the love that y'all have for me. Today we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, chapter 21. I have a practice of reading through the Bible once a year, and so at the end of every year I always find myself um, at the book of Revelation which really has been helpful for me because as I begin to go about the process of planning for a new semester at uh, at NC State, or as I begin to think about different goals or desires I have for the new year, what echoes in my mind is this passage. And so it helps to inform and shape the way that I think about my desires, my longings. And we are people, we are beings who deal with longings, who deal with desires, and oftentimes there are things that don't really get satisfied. Like as an example, I found myself on Christmas night on amazon.com. And this was after like we had opened up just tons of presents. you know you, you would think that there wouldn't be anything we could still need after all the presents that we opened up, but there was still a child who didn't get exactly what they wanted and they were pretty adamant that they needed to order it with the gift card that they received as a present and so there it was on Amazon trying to satisfy their desire and order yet another gift we are creatures that have longings that have desires and oftentimes they're deep and they they don't feel like they're getting satisfied but this passage is for Christians an echo of truth. This passage is for Christians something that that should shape and form the way that we deal with our desires, that we deal with our longings, because if we are not allowing this passage to speak into our desires and into our longings, those desires will drive us, those desires will define us, and ultimately those desires will leave us unsatisfied. Today as we reflect upon this passage, my hope is that this passage will speak to us of a yet more glorious day where all of our desires will be satisfied. But now, in light of that, give attention to the reading of God's word as I read for us Revelation chapter 21. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the 12 gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall, of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, The tenth Chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth Amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It is right for us to pause and ask him to help us to understand it. Please, Pray along with me in your hearts. Our Creator God, we thank you that you continue to bring life into this world. And we pray that even now as we gather, that you will use this time to be an encouragement to us, to help us to know you, to help us to see you, through your word and by your spirit. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Today, as we look at this passage, I want to look at it with three different views. I want to look at a more glorious place, a more glorious people, and then a more glorious presence. A more glorious place, a more glorious people, and a more glorious presence, because I think John uses those three views to show us the logic of this passage, and he starts by showing us a more glorious place. We see this in verse 1 where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. In that verse he's reflecting the language you would find at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 where it speaks about God making the heavens and the earth. And John shows us that, that this passage is a reflection of that creation and that God is in a sense here recreating the heaven and the earth. But what is that recreating like. you know, I live in a part of Raleigh where a lot of people are buying homes to tear them down. In fact, one of my neighbors and I were talking about this, and one of his friends was told by their real estate agent that they could make more money if they would tear down their house first and then just sell the land. People want the land so that they can come in and build a bigger or a newer house that would kind of satisfy more of their current tastes and the culture's desires. Is that what God has in mind in this passage, that he kind of needs to to wipe out the the outdated creation and build something brand new from scratch? No, that's not what John is saying when he talks about a creation of a new heaven and a new earth. God doesn't view our world as a tear down. But what he's doing in this passage is a restoration. God doesn't want to start over from scratch because when he made this world, and when he says as he does in Genesis 1, it is very good. He loved it as he made it. And he still has that heart towards his creation. The word new used in this passage is a sense of newness in quality, a sense of newness in essence, as opposed to a sense of newness in time. John is wanting us to see that God is taking this world and renewing it, restoring it, recreating it. He takes this created world that at the beginning he said was very good but since has been marred and scarred by the fall and brings it back to be very good again. He restores and cleanses it as far as the curse is found so that we can live in this world and to be able to enjoy the good that he made it to be. And John gives us a sense of what this is like when he talks about this new creation as being a place where there is no more seed. Now we live in a state that has a beautiful coastline and I'm sure many of you like me have driven down and enjoyed the, the beauty of God's creation in the ocean and the, the sand in your feet and the warmth of the sun and the sound of the crashing waves and, and the idea of no sea is kind of like, that's depressing. <laughs> we have this beautiful coastline, why would God want to get rid of it? But when he's speaking of there being no more sea, he's not saying that there's literally going to be no more ocean, but he's using what is oftentimes in the the Bible an image of chaos when he speaks of the sea. You see, throughout the Bible, or often in the Bible, you'll find the sea representing chaos and uncertainty and fear. We even see a glimpse of this in the book of Revelation in chapter 4, where it speaks about in the presence of God around his throne, there is, as we sang earlier in the hymn, Holy, 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 a glassy sea. Well, if there's a sea there, how can there be no sea in the new heavens and the new earth? What what that image of sea is saying is that that around the throne of God, there's peace, so that the sea is glassy, it's still. In the presence of the Almighty, there is no chaos, there is no uncertainty. And so when John's here speaking of this new creation and he says that there is no sea, he's trying to help us to understand the nature of this new creation is a place that there is no anxiety, there is no chaos. There is no uncertainty. We even see this in verse 25 of the passage when we read, and it's gates, and speaking of the city, it's gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. There, do you see how John is drawing on common sources of anxiety? No gates? I mean, how often have you kind of been in bed and wondered, Did I lock that door? you have to get up to go and check? No night there. How often have you had to go into a child's room because of the fear of darkness? No night there. John is wanting us to see that in this new creation that God makes, there is no source of fear or anxiety in the world anymore. We don't have to worry about things that go bump in the night. We don't have to fear that something will go wrong because God will restore the world to a place where there is no uncertainty. There is no hint of fear or hurt or evil. And when you think about what so often weighs us down as people is is a longing for this kind of world that we could live in, that we could live in a world with peace and certainty. How often do you struggle in the middle of the night to get back to sleep because you wake up with a worry? How often do you wake up in the morning with the first taste in your mouth, that little bit of bile from the stress and anxiety about what the day may bring? But what is it that stresses us? It's it's that lingering and pervasive sense of chaos, decay. evil that just seems so common in this world that we live in. What wears us down is the reality that we still live in a world where all is not right, so that we worry about the cancer diagnosis, the uncertainty of the economy, the lingering pain of a pandemic, the wound of broken relationships. But what John wants us to see is that one day we will no longer have to live in such a world, that there will be no night, no chaos, no fear, nothing that can harm you anymore. That the threat of decay is destroyed so that we can dwell in a world where good endures. So much of our life is is that longing to get free of what Paul calls the bondage to decay in Romans chapter 8. We painted our house a couple years ago. Already the paint is peeling. (laughs) It needs to be peeled again. I've had to replace my car and I finally got one that's reliable. But every time i drive drive it i'm just adding more what wear and tear i'll have to replace it again as we grow in age we gain wisdom we gain understanding but at time what happens we begin to lose the strength the ability or even the time to utilize it we live in a world that is in bondage to decay and we long to not have to deal with that anymore And John shows us that that God recreates the world to enable us to live in a world where that decay no longer defines us and destroys the good that we would do, but that that good would endure. this is what God made us to have, to live in a world that is a place of delight, not dread, satisfaction, not stress, peace, not problems. But sin destroyed the place that we were meant to dwell with God. But God will again make a place for you to dwell in, free from all fear, free from harm, free from evil, free from pain, free from chaos, free from stress, free from uncertainty, and where even those things will not even be remembered. But so often our longings are in the wrong direction. We long with a sense of nostalgia for the past as though those were the better days, but the past has just as much decay as the present. We long that that politics will finally come and bring, through perhaps the strength of a person or a party, the, the healing that our world needs. But they are filled with so much decay themselves. We experience trauma and sadness where we're grieving real pain and real harms and real hurts, but we are longing to no longer feel that pain, to feel that hurt, to have it define us. We live with anxiety, which at times we think is just a lack of faith. But isn't it really just also a testimony to us that we long for this kind of world? God knows our longings. And he knows that the only way it will be satisfied is not through things in this world, not through our efforts to push back the decay, but ultimately for him to come as the creator and recreate the place that we are meant to dwell in. We need a perfect place, but a perfect place without a perfect people is a problem. A perfect place without a perfect people is a problem. And you can see this in the TV series, The Good Place, that some of y'all may have seen on NBC. And it's a series of uh, stories about fictional characters that live in an afterlife. And it talks about heaven and it talks about hell, but it does not talk about God or a deity. It's really interesting as it develops and it wrestles with ideas of of good and evil and morality that, that ultimately at the end of the show, the characters that are focused on arrive in heaven, arrive in a paradise that's kind of like what we've been reflecting on, a place where things don't go wrong, where all your desires are satisfied. And the fascinating thing to me about the show is at the end of the show, as these people are living in paradise, they're ultimately bored. They're ultimately unsatisfied. And at the end, they choose to have their souls cease as opposed to continuing to live in paradise. And to me, that makes sense. It's logical because they were imperfect people in a perfect place. the perfect world without perfect people is a problem. Perhaps you've had that experience that everything is going well for you in your life, but still you aren't happy, or you finally get the job you wanted, the marriage you wanted, the house you wanted, the kids you wanted, the retirement you wanted, and still it did not satisfy like you had hoped. So often we think that the circumstances are what stand between us and the happiness that we are longing for, but more often the problem is not what we see outside, but what we see in the mirror. And that's why God, in this passage, doesn't just have to fix the place that we are living in for us to be happy, but he has to fix the people. So you see verse 1, the speaking of a new heaven and a new earth, but then what do you see in verse 2? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And here John is using the imagery of a bride adorned for her husband to reflect how God himself labors to take his people and to make them to be glorious. It's important to understand that John is talking about people when he's talking about the city New Jerusalem. He's not having in mind the bricks and mortar of the city, but the people of the city. Because Jerusalem, as we read in the Old Testament, is the place where God dwelt with his people. And here we see this New Jerusalem, And just as he made a new heavens and a new earth, not from scratch, but recreating the physical world, so also this new Jerusalem is not a new people that he makes out of scratch, but when he takes his people here on earth and recreates them to be the glorious creatures that he made them to be. Jerusalem, the city where God dwells, is seen again in its marvelous glory as God has taken his people and made them to be the glorious creatures he intended them to be and it's remarkable to me how this passage really highlights the nature of the glory of God's people I mean as an example in verse 10 when John is being shown this he is taken away from the city He's taken away from the city because it's kind of like when you're trying to take a picture with your phone and you realize you're too close, so you take a step back, right, to take in the whole view. That's what's happening to John. In order for him to take in the immensity of the glory of the people of God, he has to take a step back. but Not just a little step back. He's taken far away to a mountain to be able to take in all that God has done in his people. And this passage goes on at great lengths to describe the, the glory of the city, talking about the city being having walls that have these jewels, these gates of pearl, these streets of transparent gold. But in all these things, John wants us to see that this is a description of the people of God. That's why that city has all over it names. The names of the twelve tribe of Israel to speak about the people that were brought through Redemption to faith in the Old Covenant. The the names of the 12 apostles on the city to speak of those people who have come to faith in light of the testimony of the apostles and the work of Christ. Here, John is showing the way that God brings people to become the glorious creatures that they've made and that we ultimately long to be. I recently read a quote by sociologist Alain Ehrenberg, a French sociologist, and he did a study of the history of depression. And in it, he says this. He says, Inadequacy is the pathology of contemporary depression. Inadequacy is the pathology of contemporary depression. Think about it. Think about what so often weighs on our hearts. That often leads us to feel down that there's a pervasive awareness of our own inadequacy that weighs on us that robs us of joy do you feel that do you fear that inadequacy Don't you see the way that the specter of inadequacy can drive you? The way that you can try to find and keep glory in your work, in your wit, in your well-being, in your wealth, in your wisdom. That that we can long to find glory that we can hold on to and not lose. And we see it as our lot in life to try to find it and to try to hang on to it when we get it. But more often than not, glory is an elusive thing to grasp. Notice in verse 24, as it speaks of the city in New Jerusalem, it says something interesting. John says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. Do you see the backwards nature of that verse? Kings leave their city to go forth and to find a glory for themselves through their conquests for greater land and power and wealth. But John is showing a different direction here that the kings are coming into the city to receive and give glory so often we are plagued with this quest of going out and finding glory for ourselves in this world to find that it is glory that is fleeting and dim or that we feel like we have to hold on to no matter how good this year is for you no matter how many resolutions you keep no matter how many goals you obtain no matter how many metrics you make move in the right direction you will still wake up and look in the mirror and see the specter of inadequacy but one day this passage tells us one day you can look in the mirror and not be filled with a groan but gratefulness not with longing but contentment not because you have found glory out of your strength but because God has given you his You see, that's what makes these people glorious. Did you hear how John speaks of the city, the people of God, in verse 11? He says, the city is glorious because it has the glory of God. You see, that's why we all feel inadequate. Because we all have a longing for the divine glory to be ours. For the divine glory to be radiating onto us. And the only thing that can satisfy your longing for glory is the divine glory resting upon you. Think about the great benediction from the book of Numbers, the first benediction we have in Scripture where the blessing given to the people of Israel is this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord make his face to shine upon. What is that saying? That's saying that the blessing of God, the gift of God to his people, is to have his glory resting on them. That's what our hearts are longing for, and that's what this passage shows happening. You know, it's interesting commentators reflecting upon all the jewels that uh, make up the city say that that this is really a reflection back to the high priest. It's a reflection back to the way that the priest would, as he would come into the Holy of Holies, wear a, a breast piece on his chest that had these 12 precious stones that had written on it the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would wear that as he goes into the Holy of Holies to bring the people of God into the presence of the glory of God that his goodness might shine on to them. And then Aaron would leave and go out and pronounce that benediction that that reality would linger on them. And this is what this passage is saying one day will happen That we will not have to wonder if glory is ours. But we can rest in the reality that God's shining glory onto us. Did you notice that this new world has no sun? There's no need for a sun because to have God dwell with his people means that his glory is shining throughout the world. The radiant glory of God that caused Moses' face to just shine being around the reflection of it is so powerfully present in this world that there is no need for a light. Think about that, that when you look in a mirror, what do you need in order to see yourself? A light. And in this world, what is it that's going to light your eyes? What is it going to be that that shapes the way that you look at everything? It's the glory of God. What is it that would warm your body just as the sun warms our body? It's the glory of God. To dwell in the glory of God is going to be something that shapes us, fills us, rests on us. And this is what we were meant to live in to live in his glory knowing that we are right recipients of that glory. And until we are in that presence of his glory and goodness, our hearts are always going to have that sense of inadequacy. But the hope of this passage is not just found in the geography of the new heavens and the new earth or even that sense of our inadequacy being satisfied. But the hope of this passage is not found in the creature or the creation but in the Creator. This is clearly the emphasis of this passage. Very little describes the nature of the new heavens and the new earth in a tangible way to satisfy our curiosity about what heaven's going to be like or what the new Jerusalem's going to be like. But a lot speaks in this passage about God's presence. That's really the logic of this passage. It's why verse 1 and verse 2 are followed by verse 3. Verse 1 speaks of the more glorious place, Verse 2 speaks of the more glorious people, but then verse 3 speaks of the more glorious presence, saying, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you hear the repetition even in that verse of the presence of God dwelling with his people? That the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will be with them as their God. And to dwell with God is to dwell in a kingdom that no longer has chaos and uncertainty around it. To dwell with God is to dwell with him, having his face shining on you, his glory and his love. To dwell as recipients of the blessings of the God who made all things. But the thing that brings that into our life is not what we do, but what he gives to us. You see, there's these warning passages in this chapter that that doesn't really seem to fit, right? When there's so much hope and there's so much good things that are spoken of, you stop and are almost struck by verse 8 where it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Why is that in there it's because john wants us to understand that what we need most is the presence of god that's what brings the satisfactions and the longings that our hearts have but what threatens that is if we try to find satisfaction outside of him when we try to find our longings met outside of him Because all those descriptions are ways that we go out into this world and try to find in this world a satisfaction for our longings. When you think about that calling of those who are murderers, it's saying that my strength can find peace in this world. Or when it finds warnings against sorcerers and idolaters, it's saying that that my spirituality can bring me peace in this world. When it speaks of the cowardly, or the faithless. It's saying that that my efforts are what bring me the glory that I long for. We can live in this world thinking that we can satisfy our longings, that our efforts will bring us to this idea of utopia, but John wants to warn us that that can never happen. That the only way that our satisfaction can happen is not through our strength, but through what someone else has done. Which is why the heart of this passage is when it says in verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Where are our longings satisfied? It's not through our efforts. It's through seeing that there is one who satisfies our thirst. It's not through our work, but it's seeing the one who says that it is done for you and for me. It is not from us, but from Christ, that we are able to experience the blessings that this passage holds out. And John wants us to long in the right direction, to see that, that our desires are not going to be satisfied with us, but is only when we come to him to receive from him the water of life without payment. And how do we get that? By conquering. That's what John says. He says, The one who conquers will have this heritage. But what does it mean to conquer? Throughout the book of Revelation, the idea of conquering is never what we have done, but is always what the lamb who was slain has done. What does it mean to conquer? It means for us to not get distracted by thinking that our desires can be satisfied by anything other than the work of the lamb. But There's a beautiful second part to that verse. It says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You know, last night I watched uh, The Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2 with my kids, which is a Marvel movie you can find on Disney+. And it struck me that the whole movie is really about a longing, a longing for the main character to find a father who loves him. And at the very end of the movie, he has these two father figures that in a sense are... Uh, a choice that he has to make. Who is the father that I have? And what reveals who the father is that satisfies that longing he had for a real father is the father that laid down his life for him to bring him into security. Here we have John tell us that we have such a father. We have such a Father that longs to bring us to dwell with him in security. And what he calls us to see is that there is a longing in all of us to have such a Father, to have that security, to have that presence of one who loves us and delights in us. And that our task to conquer is not to get that Father to love us or to get to that place, but to just rest and the work that he has done, and the work that he is doing to bring us to dwell with him, so that he is not just the God for us as a people, but he is the God to us, male and female, as a father, and delights to call us son. This passage gives us the great hope that we have such a father that loves us, as the hymn says, think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what Father's smile is thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Can you live in fear? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the depth of the love that you have for us and the way that you. Bring us to dwell secure with you through the work of Christ and by your love. We pray that our longings would line up with that great longing. That we would rest in the love of our Father. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.